Okay, good morning, everyone. Good, morning. good to see you all. Uh, I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians. and uh, Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be looking. We're going to begin in verse uh, 12. We covered uh, 1 through 11. And we'll be uh, beginning at verse 12 this morning. <coughs> Let's uh, just read a portion of this text, and then we'll read the rest of it as we move along. Paul says this, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me Handwritten word in Christ Jesus. I want <clears throat> to throw a word out to you this morning. Uh, the word golf. That's a word that evokes for me like serious pain, humiliation, <laughs> and frustration. <clears throat> and I, the title of my sermon this morning is Progress Not Perfection. And Golf is an interesting game. It's, it's very much of a head game, much more than it is a physical game. It's one that will challenge you at many uh, levels. It, to many, it seems stupid because it's, changing, it's chasing white balls on green grasses. And probably a lot of people that have never played think, that's stupid. I mean, I used to think the people that watch golf on TV needed to seriously get a life, okay? Because I didn't, I, didn't I didn't get what made that exciting. Like, I get hot, like ice hockey, I love. I lo love watching the collisions, okay? And I, I've been through a little of that, uh, being the youngest of three brothers. I understand that. I like, I like watching the principle of Jesus that it's better to give than to receive, okay? I like that. <clears throat> Golf is different, though. It's, it's like you against the course. And if there's a, and you're in a tournament of some type, it's you against another, a number of other people. But to win, you have to beat the course, and I thought of this this morning as, I, as the analogy came to mind. I thought, nobody seeks perfection in golf. It's a given <clears throat> that perfection is unattainable. Joe DePinto, would you agree with me on that? Okay. I've never gotten perfection on one hole, unless I'm playing like putt-putt mini-golf on the easiest hole in the entire course. Then I'm like, I think I can do this, okay? And it's usually pure luck bouncing off of something. But it, it fascinated me to think of that as an analogy to the Christian life. Nobody in golf is foolish enough to think that I'm going to get 18 hole in ones. I've played golf for about 15 years. I haven't even gotten, I, I don't know if I ever had a ball land on the green yet. <laughs> it's like that bad and that painful. You would think, however, by the amount of money that people spend on new equipment, that perfection was attainable, right? That's what most women would say to their husbands. Looks, it seems like perfection is attainable because you look like you're trying to get there. Uh, the secret is you never will. It's true in the pursuit of education. It's, pursue in, it's true in the pursuit of your career. It's true in athletics. It's true in serving in the body of Christ. Perfection is unattainable. I was watching Carmelo as he played this morning. If, if you picked up on a dissonance in the music, it's because there were a couple broken strings on the guitar, okay? And I saw John Baker look down like, oh, you know, this is uh, humbling territory, <laughs> okay? As everybody's wondering what's happening, you don't know why. If you make perfection the goal and pursuit of your life, you will frustrate yourself and live a very difficult life. 
The Apostle Paul is writing in a text where he talks about perfection. He talks about true righteousness. And then he makes a disclaimer. And that's really how this text starts out. It starts out with the disclaimer in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. And there's two senses in which perfect is being used in the text. One is in terms of moral perfection as a play on words. And one is as a picture of maturity. Um, if, 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 if you want to use a, a term that maybe most of us would understand, when we, we joke that some people think they've arrived. Okay, and we don't mean that as a compliment. All right, we mean that as a, are you kidding me? Okay, and that's in a sense, Paul's saying, I don't want you to hear from my joy and hope about resurrection and perfection in Christ, I don't want you to hear that I think that I am better than you or that I have achieved a status that good luck to you if you can get there. Kind of a put down. And so Paul wants to be very clear up front. I am not there. And so he's going to give this disclaimer as a point of clarification in the broader discussion of the book. I have not arrived. I am not yet perfect. I have not laid hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. Meaning, I have not gained what He has gained for me. In fact, I am unable to do that. And here's how Paul lays it. I just have three simple steps from verse 12. Just to kind of try to follow a bit of a flow. Not that I have already obtained or that I have already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Okay, so that's, that's his flow, and here, here's, here's the idea. Christ took hold of me, which is to say, Christ confronted me in my rebellion against him on the road to Damascus and laid claim and ownership to my life. And everything else in Paul's life following Jesus is a result of that work of Christ. Christ seized me. Okay, that's the beginning point of Paul's relationship with God. Jesus started something in me, and the idea is Christ laid hold of me with a very particular purpose and aim. I want you to think about your Christian life in that way. When God, by the Spirit, convicted you of your sin and drew you to faith in Christ and gave you the gift of new birth, He had a plan, an aim, a reason for doing that in your life. Paul lives very conscious of that. Christ's work in my life has a purpose. There's an aim, there's something that he wants to do that he's aiming to accomplish through my life. Paul will, in this text, talk about pressing on. And it's a picture of cooperating with Christ in this laying hold. So there's this kind of a balance. Doug talked about this in Philippians 2 and verse 12. I work and God works. So that the end result can never be attributed to human perfection or human attainment. Meaning I can never take credit for what God is doing or accomplishing in my life. And that produces a wonderful degree of of humility. Paul says I'm pressing forward to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. Meaning I have softened my heart by the Spirit of God to be a person who is cooperating with the work of God in me to get to the aim of Jesus. I press with a name to possess that for which Christ laid hold of me. And then in in, in verses 10 and 11 and 20 and 21, I'm going to just draw from two places. The idea is that Jesus is the one who completes that work that has been begun. Meaning Paul says, if somehow I will attain to the resurrection of the dead, which is the place of the righteous in the book of Daniel. And in verses 20 and 21 of this same text, 
He says, our citizenship is in heaven. From there, we eagerly await for the Savior, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So what is Paul saying? Jesus started something in me. I am participating with him or cooperating with him in it. The completion of this work is up to Jesus. So that I never live with this onerous burden of needing to be somebody or be something. I am in Christ something I could never be. I don't have to pursue perfection. It is given to me as a gift by the grace of God and it is completely and totally undeserved. And I think Paul's saying something like this as a clarification. I have not reached perfection and I am never alone in my pursuit of the purposes of Christ in my life. Folks, for me, that is a comforting thought. He never lets us go to see how we do. He is constantly for us. And and I think the other thrust of this, when Paul talks about being laid hold of by Christ, okay, I think the other thing that Paul is kind of indicating here is that any effort moving forward, progressing in Christ-likeness, is attributed always to a prior work of God in Paul's life. So if in Paul you find a longing, a pressing, a pursuing towards true righteousness and godliness, Paul's always attributing that to a previous work of God in his life and that all of his effort is his response in gratitude for that work of God rescuing him. So there's always a look back that motivates pursuit in the present. Does that make sense? So that it function not out of I have to do it. No, Christ has started something. And the impossible has become achievable in Christ as we work with him together. So I think that's kind of the the background of the text. So that the, the goal that emerges as you read this text should be, what God is looking for in my life is not 18 holes in one. It's not what he's looking for. It's impossible. But he is calling me to and encouraging me to and helping me to progress so that we can look at each other in our mixed status as believers and be gracious and encouraging one another that the goal of the Christian life is moving towards Christ-likeness, not attaining Christ-likeness. I personally would not like being around people who are perfect. I would find that highly irritating. I struggle being around good people. Okay, Sometimes I struggle being around mature people. So then Paul moves from that to give us an image of what this progress is like. Okay, Paul, so the goal is not perfection. We already have that in Christ. But the goal is that we'd be moving towards, increasingly, Christ-likeness. And so you might say to yourself, okay, Paul, what would that look like in my life? And here's what Paul's going to say. It's going to look like a race. Now, I don't care what kind of race you want this to be. You can make this a sprint that happens in, in the idea that, boy, life is a vapor, okay? Or you can make it a marathon. You can make it whatever you want to make it. Paul's drawing on the analogy of running to get to a a, a very earnest point and a very clear picture of what Christian living is like. It's what Paul would say is Christian living is like race running. Okay, now, observation. Okay, I was down at Ocean City this week. My my in-laws do some work at their house. And I made an observation that there are upwards of, I mean, there are tens of thousands of people on that island. And occasionally you see someone jogging. Okay, so my my assumption is race running is not attractive to most of us in this room. 
Okay, the idea of going out there and exercising and jogging is not highly appealing. I would say it's a small majority of us that actually participate in that practice. But Paul uses it as an analogy of what Christian living is like. And, and I think he's, he's talking about how a, a, a runner in a race successfully executes the pursuit of the goal. Okay, if you study modern running, I like, I like to watch the 100 meter uh, event in the Olympics. That's just, for me, that's like a highlight event. Okay, I love watching the strain, the effort. I love hearing about the training techniques. And what you find as you listen is there's a lot that goes into running, a lot more than getting out on the track and saying, let's go. There's a whole lot that's behind. There's a whole lot of sacrifice that's involved. There's a whole lot of effort. There's a whole lot of training. There's a whole lot of psychological training about how you look at the race. And so in this text, Paul's going to talk about a few aspects of race running. Now I want you to look at it as he describes it. One thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on. Now, I press on is the one thing that Paul does. That's what running is. It's, it's getting as quickly as you can from the starting line to the finishing line. And in that whole process, Paul says, when you get on the track, you've got to put everything on the table. You've got to be all in in the race to win. Okay? But he gives other qualifiers and things that are part of being a good runner. And they are, first of all, forgetting what is behind. Now, for a runner, it would be giving up all of the pleasures of life, all of the things that you want to eat so that you eat things that are good for runners. Okay, you've got to give things up. In the spiritual realm, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, I give up on deficient righteousness. I forget my former pursuits in the realm of religion. I counted them as rubbish. I count them as trash. I set it aside. It hinders in the race. So Paul says... For a runner, it's forgetting what is behind for the pure and sheer joy of running well. Okay, that's what motivates Paul to say, you know what, I count that as something that is a loss. I give it up. And then he talks about and reaching forward. And the picture of this word, straining toward, different translations use different words, but the idea is that runner towards the end of that 100 meter dash straining okay and there are parts of the body that become visible in that moment that normally you don't see okay you can see the effort you can see the strain okay and that's what paul says i i am so devoted to glorifying christ by making progress that i give my all for that and i never look back i don't look at those around me if you're familiar with with 100-meter racing, you know that one of the most dangerous things you can do is try to identify where the opponents are. That distraction will cost you. And Paul says, I forget what's behind. I strain forward towards the goal. And then he talks about one other thing. He says, I strain and press on toward the goal. And the idea of goal literally is a mark. And what Paul's saying is, I picked an object down the road. For Paul, spiritually, what is it? I want to be like Jesus. Paul says, I am so fixed on that that I can't see anything else. Sometimes people come up after church and be apologizing for their child's behavior while I was preaching. 
Okay, here's a hint. I don't see much of what's going on in here when I'm preaching. Okay, so if you fall asleep and you come up and say, hey, dude, I fell asleep today. I'm going to say, I didn't notice. (laughs) Don't waste your breath. Okay, Paul said, Paul said, I am so focused. I don't see everything else that tends to distract and discourage. Folks, you need to be careful of this. In the context of church life, looking at others will not be encouraging most of the time. Looking at Christ will always be. Paul says, I am fixed on a goal. I am pressing toward what Christ laid hold of me for. And that is that I would be like him. I think the goal in Paul's life is to stare at Jesus. So much that he has changed, as the one songwriter has said, by beholding him. And that will kill discouragement. It will kill pride. And it will make you run for the glory of God. I think the goal here is not winning but how one runs and i think the whole person of the analogy is not that we would tweak out every part of it but that we would look at the the focus the determination the strain and the goal of someone who gets on the track to run and paul says in my christian pursuit that i am not the person who has already attained perfection disclaimer i am the person who is straining towards the end okay and paul says I am still active in my pursuit. And this is my view of Christian living and Christian progress. And I think Paul would say something like this. This pursuit of giving my all to this end is something that is demanding and worthwhile. And folks, you have to go a long way in life to find pursuits that demand everything and are worthy of all that they demand. You understand what I'm saying? There are many things that people commit themselves to that when they stand before God, they will wish they had counted it loss. I don't want to be that person. I wrestle with that in my life in different areas. Maintaining focus, keeping the priorities, straining forward, keeping my eye on the goal so that Christ will be glorified in my life. Paul says something like this in 1 Corinthians 9.25. He says, all runners go into strict training. They forget stuff that's behind. They're straining towards the goal. Even their training is straining and effort and pursuits. Here's what Paul says, though. He says, they do it to get a prize. And the prize that is being described is the laurel wreath. And then here's what Paul says. It fades away. Honestly, I can't remember who won the last 100-meter dash in the Olympics. I can't remember there are a whole lot of things that people pursue and attain that will never be, they're, what? They're not, it's not worth it. I think what Paul is challenging us to is there is something in the Christian life that is worth everything you have. And that is to seek to know and to glorify and to honor Christ above all things. And when you do that, it will produce in your life such liberation. The training will not be losing. It will be winning for the glory of God. True believers live like runners. And then Paul gives a simple nod to God. And I just love this. In the middle of this text, in verse 14, he says this. I press on toward the goal to win the prize to which God has called me heavenward in Christ. And what is Paul saying? 
This transformation of my life, this is what Paul's about, his testimony, the man that was destined to go to Damascus and slaughter Christians in the name of God is moving in a definitively and distinctly different direction. Because of what? Because God has called me. And I just want you to think about that. If you were in Christ, it's because God worked by the sovereign grace of the Spirit to change your heart and to bring you into a new relationship with Him that I can't take credit for, but that I can glory in in a Christ-exalting way. So what is Paul saying? A key acknowledgement or a key understanding for the Christian race is that my position in Christ is a result of God's call, His plan, His purpose being worked out in my life. When you think of Paul, what was he? Can you forgive me for using this term? Paul was a hellraiser. He was, his religion, and I challenge you to think about this, Paul's pursuit of religion did not make him righteous. It made him ugly. It made him self-righteous and judgmental and critical to the point that he could literally persecute good people. Folks, that's what Paul's old pursuit. Paul said, I used to be running in the exact opposite direction. I was running into hell. Now I'm running to Christ. And Paul says, the reason that happened is God confronted me in my rebellion, converted my heart, and brought me to faith and confession and repentance and trust in Christ. Folks, if that's your story, you have a reason to run. And that's what Paul's saying. He called me into this. He pursued me. He laid hold of me. And then along with this now call to progress, not perfection, again, I want to just keep saying that. I want you to go away today saying that God does not require of me perfection. He does not. In fact, he has made provision for all of your failures. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And even though you stepped out of line on the racetrack, he put you back in. That's what God does. But then Paul talks about this path forward as you pursue. As you seek to become all that God wants you to be and to find great joy in that. Verse 15. He says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Should All that are mature should admit that they are not perfect. No one should be so far along in the Christian race they, that they, when they look at others in struggle, they look down on them. Never that far. That's what Paul's saying. But all of us who are mature have an obligation, and that's what Paul's laying on us as we run the race together. We should take the same view of things. And if on some point you think differently, and I think what Paul's saying is if you're struggling with grasping the fact that your former righteousness was deficient and that the righteousness of Christ is glorious and praiseworthy, if you're struggling with that, God will show you. And don't you love that? Paul's like, I'm going to leave that to God to change your heart. I'm going to declare the truth to you. And as I see you struggling with it, I'm going to pray that God opens your eyes. I love that. I think it's a call for patience with one another, coming to grasp the fullness of the gospel that God has called us into. People struggle with it. I struggle with it. Grasping it, apprehending it, knowing it fully so that it's utterly changing and transforming. He says that too, God will make clear to you only, and it's simple Christian living. 
Only let us live up to what we have already attained. What is Paul saying in the realm of, if, if, if I move it into the realm of family life or parenting, I think what Paul is saying is something like this. At your age. Okay, he's saying, you know, some of you as believers have been in Christ long enough that others should be able to be following you. Act your, it's what, he, what is it? Act your age. Live up to what you know. Start to live it. Let knowledge affect life. Some pursue knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Paul's saying, that's rubbish. I used to do that. No, the only knowledge that matters is the knowledge that has the effect of converting and transforming and bringing progress in your life. And Paul says, live, live, whatever you know, live it out. People always say to me, oh, Pastor Tim, I wish in this setting, in my workplace, that you had been there. Well, guess what? Here's why they're saying it. Well, because you could have answered questions that I couldn't answer. I said, guess what? God didn't put me there. Live up to what you know. Proclaim the truth that God has revealed to you. Tell someone how he changed your heart. You don't need a degree to share Jesus. You need a relationship to share Jesus. What does Paul say? Live up to what you know. Why? Because it has an impact on everybody around you. Pride destroys relationships in churches. This gospel-centered humility that walks humbly towards the goal, straining and working, says to everybody else, I am in the same game that you're in. I'm running the same race that you're running, and I am giving my all. And here's what happens to me. When I get around people that are all in and devoted, uh, it changes me. My, I, I have a, 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 a measurable uptick emotionally when I get around committed people, particularly around committed Christians. Right, and most of you can probably think of the people in your life that when you're around them, their joy in Christ is infectious. I'm not saying that they're necessarily loud and verbal and vocal about it, but there's something about the level of commitment they have that is drawing you kind of, it's drafting you behind them. And I think Paul's saying something like this. Uh, here's where I am. No, I am not at the goal. I'm still straining forward. This exemplar of Christ. In prison for Christ. Straining. Not complaining. I'm straining forward. To lay hold of what God is seeking to accomplish in me. I am cooperating with the Spirit of God. And as I do that, I begin to affect others. Live what you know. Act your age spiritually. And then there's in 17 and following this, what I'll just call a path forward. Here's what Paul says. Join with others in following my example. Okay, so some of you are thinking, well, Paul sounds a little like up on himself, right? It's like, that comes after that? Okay, but here's what I want you to realize. What did Paul just do? Paul took all of his credentials and threw them down the stairs. About a year ago, I was driving down Kidman Avenue, and I drove past a, I have the picture on my phone, I drove past a pile of trophies. I don't know if any, any of you ever saw this, sitting out by the garbage with the trash cans. I mean, a pile. I knew the person that lived there. He had passed away. And I thought to myself, I actually did a U-turn and went back and took a picture because I was like, holy cow. That's the picture. You can run races to get things that when you die will be meaningless. Or you can follow good examples. And I think what, what is Paul saying? Paul's not saying I'm already there. 
But in some cases, I think, and, and, and I may, may be able to say this, some of you can say this to me, Pastor Tim, I'm a little further down the race road in that area than you are. Draft. What is Paul saying? Look, I, I've been through a lot. Christ has so radically changed me and given me a love for him. I want you to share in that. It's not a brag. It's not like I'm all that follow me. It's watch what God is doing in my life. And he's already given Jesus all the credit, right? That person is safe. Folks, you ought to be making enough progress that people can safely follow you. That's a question I think sometimes we've got to ask ourselves. Who's following me? Is it, is it safe for them to come in line with where I'm going? Challenging question. But I think it's one you have to reckon with. Paul says, join with others in following my example, brothers. Now he goes into familial terminology. There is affection here now. We've gone from enemies of the cross or, 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 or from mutilators to brothers. And there is affection and there is love. Paul says, take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Identify and to take note. The, the word in, in, the, in the Greek, I don't use this a lot, but it's the word scope in the verbal form. Okay, scope out. All right, it's identify and follow. Paul's saying, find people in your sphere of influence, which indicates the Christian living is to be done in the context of vital relationships. Find people and follow people. Join with those that are moving in the direction that God wants you to move in and draft behind them. Okay, and go where they're going for the glory of God. So I think the first thing Paul would say is, Find and follow worthy models. As you, as you try to move from where you are to where God wants you to be, and I, this is my picture of the Christian life. Okay, it's my kind of way of saying what God is saying. I, I want to go from where I am today to where God wants me to be. The Bible calls that sanctification. Paul, in this context, would call it race running. It's moving a little further down the track. Okay, Paul's not saying you have to hopscotch to perfection. Start walking in the right direction. Start following good examples. Cultivate a vital relationship with him and watch what God will begin to do. And I think the great challenge to that is I live in an individualistic world. I live in a world where most people are very tempted to live for their own pursuits, for them and theirs, for me and mine. And to break out of that and to start to think in a broader context about the nature of Christian living. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Find people that are going and get with them. Spend time with them. Vitalize a relationship that will be transformational in your life. So the challenge is, can you think of someone that you've identified, that you're drawing near to, that you're following? And if you're down the road a little further, who are you taking along with you? Don't waste your life. And don't waste the opportunity that God has given to you. Verse 18, Paul gives a caution. Because he says, identify those that are following the example. Take note of them. And then he gives a warning. <clears throat> Verse 18, he says, For as I have often told you before and now, I say it again, even with tears. Folks, I want you to think about this. What moves Paul's heart to tears? What breaks him down? <clears throat> you know what it is? People that think they're moving in the right direction but have deficient righteousness because they're trusting in themselves. It tears him up. But he's also truthful about them. 
He says, these are the kinds of people you need to be careful of. I say it again with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. They don't, what is Paul? They don't glory in the accomplishment and achievement which Jesus actually did for them at the cross. They, they are caught in a struggle between deficient righteousness and true righteousness. Paul says, I tell you that with tears. Why? Because, and he goes, gives two descriptors. He says, their God is their appetites. Meaning they are not running through life, they are being drugged through life. There's a difference between being a Christian and running freely and being a slave who's being drugged. Now here's what Paul says. What, what drives them is temporary pleasure. Hunger can be enslaving, can it? I wrestle with this all the time. I am always fighting to stay below a certain number, which I will not reveal publicly. Okay? But I am, con- I, I am constantly having to make adjustments to strive to stay below the high mark, which I achieved like 17 years ago at my daughter's birthday party when I ate two steaks. And I was like, okay, guy, I am not going there. Okay, that's the line, okay? <coughs> and most of you are probably thinking Paul's talking about teenagers in this text, right? Their God is their belly, okay? They come home from school and they tell you they're starving. And your response is, really? Okay, I don't think so. All right, their God is their belly is to say that they are driven by the, the appetites, the longings of their heart are dragging them. It's a picture of slavery, folks. When your God is your belly, your, when your appetites rule you, that's what Paul's talking about here. Paul's saying that's not freedom. Their God is their desire to be seen as something. Achievement. Acquisition. And then the next thing he says is they do what? They set their minds on earthly things. And I think Paul's also in this warning us of tendencies. They're they're obsessed with acquisition, prosperity for the sake of security. That creeps into the church. And Paul's identifying what? False teachers who seem to indicate that, that, that having more means you are more valuable to God. You're more loved and blessed by God. Paul said I would have nothing to do with that. God is belly. Mindset on earthly things. Their glory is their shame. Their glory meaning the thing that you would think attributes to them righteousness is really a shameful thing. Folks, that's how religion works. A sense of self-righteousness and bragging about what I've done or what I've accomplished or who I've become, Paul says that kind of glorying is actually shameful because that kind of glorying always arises out of deficient righteousness. It feels righteous, but in fact is not. Therefore, what I am claiming to be my mark of significance is actually a deterrent to true righteousness. I can't love the righteousness of Christ while I am loving my own performance. I can't. And so Paul says what, what seems to be glory and, 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 and praiseworthy, creditworthy, is actually detrimental. And the last thing he says is, they are earthbound, their mind is set on temporal things. And I think Paul's concern in this text is that there are things that can lead you astray from the progress that God has 
and desires for you. What is Paul saying then in these verses? I think what Paul is saying is you need to test and verify the people around you in terms of where you seek to find models for Christian living. You need to test and verify what you turn on on your radio in terms of teaching. You need to think carefully about the books that you feed on. If they're not promoting true, clear, biblical theology, you need to think very, very clearly. And what is Paul doing? Paul's saying, I will not hesitate to give you warnings and to encourage you to find and follow worthy examples. Find and follow worthy examples. But I think Paul would qualify that statement by saying something like this. Do that, but mainly follow Christ. You see, I think there's a bit of a a caution in Paul's statement. And I think the caution is something like this. I'm encouraging you to follow me, but I'm also giving you some means by which you can test the people you're following. And I think Paul would say something like this. Continue to apply the test because people can drift off center. What Paul really wants people to pursue is Christ. And what he's saying is, in as much as I am in pursuit of Christ, follow me. But if I, in any of these areas, begin to drift off center, stop following me. In other words, stay the course. Make sure that the goal of your life is never the person in front of you, but where they're going if they're going towards Christ. That way, if, my, if, if I get in behind them and fix my eyes on Christ, and I come in behind them and they veer off track, if I keep my eyes fixed on Christ, you know what happens. I continue to move towards the goal and experience progress. Okay, so I, I give you this text as a bit of a warning and a culture of massive amounts of information. People often will ask me, what do you think about so-and-so? My, in terms of writers of, quote, Christian literature, my response typically is this, I don't know them. I can only, or, or what do you think about listening to so-and-so? The answer, I don't know them, I can't judge them. Paul seems to be talking very much about relationships that are deep that you can test and know people You're living close enough to them that you can determine whether they're worthy of your allegiance. But your ultimate allegiance is to Christ. Okay, does that that make sense? Test everything, cling to what's good, reject what's evil. And then I think the last thrust of this text is found in verse 20. So our mind is not set on earthly things. Instead, and he uses the word but to give the transition. Okay, I want you to notice that. He says, but our citizenship and citizenship is what it's an interesting word to think about citizens citizenship is home okay one of my my favorite experiences of going overseas is coming home and i don't mean to 11 lauren drive one of my favorite experiences is going through immigration because a lot of times the immigration officers will say to you welcome home first time that happened i was like all of the attendant privileges of citizenship are mine. And I'm, I'm grateful. I don't love everything about our country, but I am grateful that this is my home. It's my citizenship. I'd rather be here than anywhere else on the world, in the world, to live. And what is Paul saying? Paul's saying you have a greater privilege than being a citizen of Rome. If you're a Christian, he says your citizenship is in heaven, which means what? I never set my mind on earthly things as hope. I never set my mind on those things to give me joy and pleasure and satisfaction. I keep my eyes on Jesus. Then all those things are enjoyed in the context of this pursuit. Does that make sense? 
Your citizenship is in heaven. And I love what Paul then says. He says, from there, we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He's right back to the cross work of Christ again. From there, we await true righteousness and a true Savior and a true Lord. And here's what I think he's ultimately saying. From there, you wait for true power to do, as we sung a little bit ago, what is right. Isn't this our constant frustration? I'm trying, I'm striving, and I find myself failing. What do I need to remind myself of? That there's hope and forgiveness for progress. Okay, that's the, the drumbeat of this text. And, but then there's hope, and the hope is this. Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Why is Paul saying that? What is the point of saying that your lowly body will be made like his glorious body? The point is that in my current physical condition, I am not suited for heaven. But under the resurrection power of Christ, my progress leads to, by the power of Christ, perfection. And I think Paul glories twice in this text. I think he glories in verses 10 and 11 by saying, if somehow I, a fallen, broken sinner, might attain to the resurrection of the dead, might be found in the place of the righteous because of Christ. And then again at the end of the text, what is he saying? He's saying any hope of me having heaven and perfect righteousness must be rooted in the attainments and achievements of Jesus. And that's why Paul says, from there, we race runners eagerly await for a Savior who, when he comes, will totally transform us into his likeness. The goal now, progress. And folks, here's what I would say. The mark of a true believer is that they are moving forward in Christ. That there is moving from grace to grace from knowing Christ to a deeper knowing of Christ, from intimacy to deeper intimacy with Christ, there is something of movement in the life of a true believer. There is progress. That's, that's a mark, I think, that Paul's pointing out. And Paul says, when you find someone who's a little further down the road than you are, draft with them. Remembering that the goal is not that I get an 18 on the golf course of life, but that I continue to see improvement. Okay, and that... I think Paul would say that that improvement will be attributed to Christ. He then ends the text by saying, therefore, my beloved brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord. And I think the final emphasis of this text is that this, this experience of progress in Christ is not an individual effort. It requires training. It's like a race, but it's really, when you boil it down, more of a relay race where each one is contributing in a selfless way to the success of the other. And I think that's why Paul here, going back to chapter 1, verse 27, earnestly contend together as one man. Next text, tell Yodia and Syntyche to get along. Why? So much is at stake. The glory of Jesus Christ himself. This aim of Christians is an aim that we should be pursuing together. 
realizing that we do not need to kill ourselves over the pursuit of perfection. Perfection is already present in Jesus Christ. And that is the ground of boasting that Paul says, I will stand on as I run this race for the glory of God. Christian living is a relay race where all are seriously interested in growing and contributing to one another's progress. That is the aim of the Christian life. Progress, not perfection. Father, will you help us as we go from this place to seek to take one more step forward in our walk of faith. And Lord, help us through Paul's encouragement to do it together. Help us to identify people that we can follow. Help us to be courageous in finding people that we can help and encourage. Lord, let us do that for your glory. And Father, I pray that if there is someone here this morning who lives under the incredible bondage of the pursuit of perfection, Father, I pray that you would grant them today freedom. I pray, God, that you would sever those uh, cords that desire to bind and enslave and that you would free them in the name of Jesus to run the race set before them, realizing that Christ desires to lay hold of me and that God in his grace desires to call. Father, I pray that your grace would come down in glorious ways in this church family and that we would all become race-running Christians whose goal is progress, not perfection, until Jesus comes. We pray in his glorious name and all God's people said, amen.